For broadcasting opportunities on Wildfire Radio, go to wildfireradio.com and click Contacts. For advertising opportunities on any of our shows, go to wildfireradio.com and click on Advertise. And remember, for all of your concert and sporting event tickets, go to SeatGiant.com and use code WILDFIRE at checkout for a great discount. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Colt McCord on Wildfire Radio, where we look at the issues that surround the sports world from a legal and business standpoint. I'm your host, Gerald Colton. Over the next hour, as we do every week, we'll be discussing all those issues and more. And we're joined today by Albert Young, former NFL running back of the Minnesota Vikings, played his collegiate ball at Iowa. Welcome, Albert. Welcome back to Colton Court. Thanks for having me, Gerald. Glad to be on. Always good to have you, and we're going to delve into these issues together, you and I. And each week there's a whole set of issues that present themselves. Some of them linger. Some of them come up short for a short period of time. But we are at the start of the NFL season, a few weeks in, as well as college football season. And certainly we know that football is kind of the religion of this country these days, and there's an awful lot of attention in the NFL. And, Albert, you having been a player, um, I really do want you to – give your opinions and somewhat your point of view from a player standpoint as to how things are going this year in the NFL. From my standpoint, as been as has been happening over the last several years, the quality of play seems to be going downhill. Um, I think there's a lot of factors for that. I'm not sure the public actually really feels it completely, but from a standpoint of the way practices go with a lot less contact, the way exhibition season has been reduced to, to kind of absurdity, I think we go into the season almost not prepared quite a way to play NFL games. What's your feeling from your point of view? Uh, you know, I, I agree with you on that. Um, I think, obviously, with the new plans and the um, new CBA agreement with everything, it seemed like all the players cared about was getting less practice time. And uh, the owners kind of just gave it to, gave them to that. Because all the owners care about is their money, and the players get balled up by all the, you know, window dressing and not having practice, where the main issues, you know, they're just getting blindsided on and you're seeing that right now so less time at the facility so yeah that's going to affect the play but uh it's just so tough with you know the lack of contact practices but then players want to protect themselves so those first couple games are going to be what's going to get you know, Albert, you talked about the CBA, and it goes back a few years to the lockout, um, following which the CBA was agreed to pretty quickly on the eve of mm-hmm. really the exhibition games. And at that point, the NFL really held tight on most economic issues, but gave in on non-economic issues, such as practice time and things like that and player safety, which was a great coup to some extent for the NFLPA, but didn't really translate to terms of dollars. And in the long run, I'm not sure it's been so good for the game, although it certainly helps prolong careers to some extent. However, when you as a player haven't had real full contact and then you step on the field in games, um, what kind of difference does that make? Because I think we're seeing some effect from that. And even though ideally these kind of lack of contact things theoretically help player safety and longevity I'm also think we're seeing yeah. some I also think we're seeing some more injuries during games themselves because of maybe not being prepared 
Yeah, but I tell you this. I, I mean, by the time guys get to the league, you done hit and been involved with so much football. You, you, I, I don't really think you need to really – you don't have to tackle at practice that much. Um, NFL, you know, guys might see – you know, well, average fan might see teams wearing just shoulder pads and shorts and, like, what are those guys doing? Don't you need full gear? You don't. You get the same work in that practice as you would full gear as you would with uh, just shoulder pads and shorts. So, I don't I, – truthfully, I don't think – I think the, the first couple games is just what's going to have to go. Um, as a player, I didn't need that much time. Like, I, like I mean, you only need like a week, week and a half, and I think you're ready to go, and especially as a running back. Um, it's like I, I didn't need a big tackle to be able to go do it, you know. It's more like touch me as little as possible. Well, it's you know, interesting. Let me say that for the game. And, and I, can, I certainly can understand that, and I think all players really feel that way. But if you, you mentioned your position, which was running back, and you played on a team that also mm-hmm. had Adrian Peterson. We have one of the yeah. best running backs in the league is Le'Veon Bell and the Pittsburgh Steelers. And Le'Veon had no preseason whatsoever. He was signing his mm-hmm. franchise tender, and he waited to the last second, basically, and yeah. then walked in and came out for the season. But i got to tell you, he hasn't looked quite as good in the first two weeks. Well, has he been? What well, did he practice? He he came in uh, the last week and practice practice like, practice, like, like, like <laughs> that's about it. Just a couple yeah, of like days. When I said you need like a week. Yeah, when I said you need like a week, week and a half, I meant actually like playing, like practicing. Can't practice though. Like you're still scrimmaging and you're still doing nine oh sevens. At least as a running back, if he's been doing that stuff, he should be good. But you can't just come off the street and just play ball though. We are um, we are early in the season, Albert, and, yeah. and at this point we have seen a slight rise over previous year, and actually relatively statistically significant from from last year to this year in terms of the spread, the disparity in the games where the average margin of victory was twelve point nine points through the first two weeks in this year, and only eight point nine last year. So that's up, you know, a pretty good percentage, fifty percent over the previous year. Uh, things like that to me point to the fact that we've got a lot of bad teams in the league as, as I see it and um, it, we're early in the season and jobs don't start usually falling at this point although we saw the Cincinnati offensive coordinator fired we see a bunch of bad teams and I see some general managers that have been given pretty long leashes and haven't turned things around and I, as usual we'll have a lot of bloodletting at the end of the year and I, I, I can name a few of them right now that I could see happening um, I don't like to cost any or call for anybody's heads but Chicago's had a long enough run the Jets the Jacksonville Jaguars, Cincinnati Bengals, even Houston. Yep. You know, there, there's a lot of them, and um, I scratch my head to, head to some extent that I think there's some real talented people in the street and some guys who have jobs in the NFL that maybe shouldn't. Yeah, and I would say a lot of people think Marvin Lewis is the top guy on that list. <laughs> I mean, you know, with all the talent he's got, and then, I mean, GMs and all of them are involved, too. I mean, if you can't. You know, I think they were out there welcome there. Um, but I, I don't know. That's just what – I mean, that's what happens in the game when there's a lot of guys, like you said, on the street. But coaching is just an old boy network. No. Um, yeah, and you stay. You know, I mean, it's like anything, like who knows you, what you know, um, luck. Uh, I mean, you know, certain guys got caught up, up, up to coach right now. I will have a job. You know? <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's certainly – out there. Definitely, why there's guys out there. I mean, I mean, but they all agree too. It's not like I'm not posting or anything, but it's a fact. It's how it is. Like talking about football is no different than anything else. It's a big network, and you know, it's just a tight circle. So you don't got you. All you're doing is just recycling coaches from location to location. 
because you got the same systems going around the entire NFL. Totally you know, agree. So that's, you know, you're not going to ha- have any innovation. The the last point on the, the sort of the, the play in the NFL, and then we'll, we'll turn to some other subjects, Albert, is that from my standpoint, this is always my agent standpoint, uh, you see all the time at the end of training camps as you get down to final rosters that clubs will cut veterans and keep rookies. If, and the, the thing that they will do is because of the way the CBA works and the salaries work, they will go for that cheaper player even if he's not as good, if they think over the long run, he might get better. So therefore, they often make a choice to choose the lesser player because they're looking for both the lower salary, lower salary cap hit, as well as potentially the future, rather than put the best team on the field at, at that time. And and football's the only sport that does that. You just don't see that in other sports. And for me, it's a, it's a sort of a very difficult situation. It also, to me, shows some of the problems with the way salaries work, that veterans get cut for making too much money, um, and that's really not a reason to lose their job if they're still the better player. Well, what are you trying to say here? Whether it's work, whether it's cheaper to just get rid of a mid-level guy? Well, you, you, I mean, well, it happens all the time, Albert, where a veteran, unless he's a, if you're not a real uh, major contributor in the NFL by year three or four, mm-hmm. you're going to be gone and, and mm-hmm. replaced by a younger player, even if you're still better than yeah. that younger player. Yeah, I mean, I was in the category myself. Yeah, you fell, you <laughs> one, of, so can, one of many. Yeah I, can, I can, yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, it's just what what happens, what it is. Um, yeah, it's just that whole deal where it's just cheaper to keep you. You know, I mean, I felt like that in Minnesota that uh, they brought in Toby Gerhardt. I think that I felt I was better than quite a few guys in that locker room, so I was better. But either way, it's at a position where you got two guys in front of you that are like big, big names. So you're not contributing to the point where it's like, hey, you want to invest in this guy? You know, it's just cheaper to go with somebody else rather than pay like that that minimum. Yep, and I've always always sort of felt that we would uh, hopefully address that because I just hate seeing guys lose jobs because they make too much compared to a guy that they're better than. Anyway, we will move on. Yeah. And, and, and Well, last time, Albert, that we had you on, we concluded our show by talking about the Kaepernick situation. And it's still radioactive. It's died down slightly, but it, but it can get rekindled at any point. Um, and, and he's still on the street without a job. And certainly, as we see in the league, he's in, without question by anybody standpoint better than a lot of guys who are employed in the NFL right now um, and this guy's on the street and yeah. uh, as we've you know his issue came down to the fact that he started the not standing for the national anthem he did it initially as a quiet silent protest that no one initially took notice to and it's become quite a movement and quite a controversial thing and, and we're going to delve into it now um, but as you well, yeah, you know you know now I think about it though but you got to think Marshawn Lynch did the same deal, and he said he's been doing it forever, but nobody's been noticing. And now that I think about it, I don't want to just dig back into my, you know, my memory bank here. I'm pretty sure there was somebody on our team prior to being just lazy and just didn't want to stand up for the national anthem. So, God, but I'm not for sure, but, um, you know, I think that thing is so out of whack um, because because the government got money for, you know, getting, uh, you know, pretty much the advertising. 
you know, for recruiting for the government, but people don't put that in mind. Uh, colleges, a lot of schools don't even go out for the national anthem. To tell you the truth, that's the best thing I liked about Iowa is that I didn't have to come out for that national anthem. I was one of those guys that was like, that, like I'm ready to play, I'm ready to play. Yeah, that's like, a co- I wasn't one of those guys that was sitting there singing, singing every word. I was saying in my head, can we hurry this up so I can get to work? So... I love that at Iowa. <laughs> that's the main thing I hated in Minnesota. I was like, we got to go out for the national anthem. They were like, yeah, that's what they do in the NFL. I was like, hey, we got away with it in Iowa. And, and I uh, can imagine those are those are a tough two minutes as you as you as you're in a mindset of playing where you yeah, just got to stand there silently yeah. and you're hyped like, for I'm a football game. It's like yeah, yep. it's like you know, it's like everybody else. You go to work every day. Are they playing the national anthem? I can you imagine, know. Albert. You're, you right come, now, let's go. You're hyped in the locker room. <laughs> you come running out of the tunnel. You come running to the field, ready to play yeah, football. You're slowing me down. Yep, I can. Yeah. I, I can imagine you that being. Although that's not originally that's why. That's not originally why Kaepernick started. And and I agree with you. There are, have been other protests. No, but either way, people forgot about the reasoning of it, and now it's all died down. On you know. Well, it hasn't died down <laughs> enough to get to get him a job, I, and I, and and it also ironically, yeah. ironically to me, and this is something that I never knew the NFLPA had, and it might be a new thing, but the National Football League Players Association for week one named Cal, Colin Kaepernick, unemployed Colin Kaepernick, their Player of the Week, and their basis for giving it to him was that he, and and he has certainly put his money where his mouth is. He's made uh, very significant donations, over a million dollars, to what he feels are his cause, and um, and he gave a hundred thousand dollars split between four groups and he for that he was player of the week for week one of course he's not actually a player right now so but but the irony also to me of that is that it's the same week where jj watt raised helped raise over three million dollars for the houston hurricane relief by doing by really just using social media and and getting out in front of the the ter- terrible things that happened down in houston but yet colin kaepernick was the pa's player of the week and i just there, there's so much irony here and the fact is that he isn't he was not the yeah, only one his cause got joined and, and and just just on another t- another guy who's also not who's chosen not to stand for the national anthem is michael bennett on seattle and ironically he was at the mayweather mcgregor fight in vegas and got tackled by police for no reason and uh-huh. you could and and here uh-huh. he, and and I, I know it wasn't because they they recognized him and it was his stand on the national anthem but it sort of brings attention to the to the very reason he wasn't standing um so so with yeah. all with all that albert you know when you were on last last time we talked about this a little bit but then and what really prompted me to want to bring you back is then then you and i talked afterward and we really went at it <laughs> um and, and when i say went at it we just we, we had very different perspectives on certain things and and the major one was and i want you to talk about it a little bit is that you are in favor of because at least it gets people talking Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's not. I mean, what? I mean, he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, that that that's what's crazy to me. Like, you know, people don't know the type of. Let me say something. NFL don't have like you know the most holiest of characters around. You know? So <laughs> you haven't you know, been one I of mean, them. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, and for yeah, and well, I mean, whatever it is, it's just you know, it's a business. So you can't say Colin is a locker room distraction. Okay. You can't do that because there's nothing a teammate can do, you know, outside of probably committing like a felony, like some really hardcore stuff. That's going to be a distraction to me as a teammate. That's going to affect my play on the field because my life isn't long enough in the NFL. So he's definitely not going to be a distraction to a team in a locker room. Um, I mean, you talk about fans. The fans don't 
the fans aren't going to go anywhere. I mean, there's too many people that watch the draft. I always use that example. The PA throw that in my head forever. You know, millions of people watch the draft. That's guys not playing football. So fans aren't going anywhere. So, I mean, I think the owners are just trying to flex their muscle and, you know, some of them, um, you know, whatever their political reasons are. Uh, I mean, they're all billionaires. You know, you know who their boy is, you know. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, there's an old boys network as well. Well, is that is that an implication towards the White House? Yeah, it would have to be. I mean, you never know. I mean, there's just, you know, for whatever reason, he's not getting picked up. Um, but, you know, their argument could kind of be what we're, what we're hitting on earlier about how, you know, it's just cheaper to go with somebody else. Because, yeah, he's a good player, but he's not, he's not in that elite echelon. Well, so it's, whatever. It, it's hard to bring a quarterback they have in. Or whatever. A quarterback needs time and in, in, in system and development and practice. Yeah, it's mean, hard to bring him in. As well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just to, to the point now, you, you know, it, it's going to be hard to pick up a system, you know, if at all. So, I mean, it might be too late for that, but who knows? And, I mean, at the end of the day, Kyle's got to defend himself, too. I mean, I don't care. You know, these are just my opinions. But, I mean, if he really cared that much, you know, he would have to, you know, if he's not going to defend himself, you know, maybe he's not worried about it too much and everybody else is making a big deal out of it. Well, Albert, you touched on the White House a little bit, and obviously that's a lightning rod in this country right now. And, um, at times, just an absolute disgrace and embarrassment. Uh, and, uh, you know, it definitely does tie into some of the firestorm that comes to some of this stuff. And so we were, we're on the heels of... ESPN host Jamel Hill tweeting out, and this is on her own time and her own Twitter, and she didn't do it on the air, but she tweeted out some tweets about Donald Trump in the White House saying that he's a white supremacist. He surrounded himself with white supremacists, and he got elected because of white supremacists, which um, from my standpoint, crossed lines. I, I think I, I think it went too far. I have no problem with anyone who's going to uh, insult the president <laughs> and uh, you know and, and they certainly have a right to do so but um the the whole grouping everybody in and then just throwing that casting that whole shadow of white supremacy over it i think hurts the argument to some extent it takes it too far um espn has not reprimanded or in any way sanctioned her or suspended her and um we do a guilty not guilty segment every week on our show albert and so i want to start with the the jamel Hill and I wasn't necessarily going to go into it right now, but you brought up the White House and and it all, is all sort of tied together. So my first question is: Do you think she's guilty or not guilty of tweets that went too far? I mean, I think in her position, she's better than that. I mean, you you would expect, you know, but you know, I mean, the real question is: Is why do we even have a president to where? You know, that's even a question, you know, so that's more of an issue. Um, so, I mean, I think she'll be all right, but she's guilty of, you know, it's like, I want to go out like that. I mean, no matter how you feel, you know, there's certain things you, you know, in her position, you know, she she's above that. But, uh, you know, I mean, we shouldn't even be questioning whether the president is a white supremacist. Well, she has uh, I don't believe it is. I mean, she shouldn't be hanging around them, but... <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I don't. I haven't heard that. Uh, I think, I think, I think, I think, if it was another president, it would be a bigger deal. You know, this is a situation where if he, you know, if he wasn't so flamboyant himself in the public, 
you know, he said so much, people, you know, could just brush that off. But if it was somebody who, you know, was probably more of what we're accustomed to, people would be more harsh on her about it. So in this case, she's actually going to get away with one because, you know, of, of the circumstances. Well, she, she has a co-host, Michael Smith, who has refused to go in the air if they were going to give her any kind of uh, discipline. And they have not given her discipline. Um, and do you think that that is the proper, do you find that ESPN is guilty or not guilty by not disciplining her? Mm, I'm more neutral on it. I mean, I don't think, I don't, I don't think enough people, I mean, it's not, it's not the first time it's been heard. You know, I file politics myself. Trust me, that's not the first or the last time somebody's going to make a statement about that. So I don't, I wouldn't hold ESPN to any more, you know, higher standards than you would uh, more of the, you know, liberal media out there that uh, make those statements on a daily basis. And you don't think she deserved any kind there's of There's a lot of people you have to fire. <laughs> that's okay. what I'm saying. All right. I mean, listen, when you're when you're in a position that's so public and you generally have to make sure that you reflect the your employer, reflect on your employer better. And she actually did tweet out uh, sort of an apology for the fact that she feels badly for what she cast ESPN as when she's just expressing yeah, her own I mean, there's views. So much, yeah, there's so much involved. You know what the level of media? I mean, ESPN. You know those guys are more on the. I guess you would say they're probably more blue than they are red as an entire network. So you know, you know, down the road somewhere, you know, she's singing the company line. So they're not going to be too bad. I mean, the ultimate irony again in this whole thing is that the White House actually called for her to get fired, and with all the yeah, stuff, know, right? with all yeah. the stuff that's come out of the White House. You know, it's maybe, maybe they uh, should. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. They should worry about what their own people are saying more than what ESPN is saying, especially yeah, um, th- this president can't be extremely sensitive to to people insulting him when uh, the stuff that comes out of out of his Twitter hands. Anyway, all right. So we don't like to get too political, but it was worth touching on um, as as it crosses over in the world of sports. There's some other stuff, Albert. I want to discuss with you. Um, some of which you may have strong opinions on, some of which you don't, but usually have strong opinions on most things. So let's talk about Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving's been an interesting figure in the basketball offseason, of course, because here you have a star guard for um, the NBA runner-up Cleveland Cavaliers, just one year removed from winning a championship, and certainly still the power in the East. Kyrie, certainly number two to LeBron, number one on that team. And yet he says he basically demanded a trade, which he received to the rival Boston Celtics. Um, it's been an interesting offseason to see such a major trade with Isaiah Thomas coming over to Cleveland, amongst other parts, in exchange for Kyrie Irving. I watched Kyrie Irving get interviewed, and he hasn't really said very much publicly about it, but sort of pressed for his reasoning, didn't give great reasons other than he wanted to ex- continue to perfect his basketball skills and things like that. You normally would think, Albert, as we've seen these super teams formed where with LeBron James and then Chris Bosh joining Dwayne Wade in Miami, which was the first super team basically that, that, that pushed that together, although it, with guys doing it from free agency standpoint. And then we saw Kevin Durant move from Oklahoma City to Golden State. And uh, this is the first move by a guy almost to break up one of those teams. Now, Kyrie certainly went to a really good team, and Boston may very well contend, but he he left one um, that had LeBron James for one that didn't. What are your feelings about 
what Kyrie Irving did. Was it selfish? Was it in his best I, interest? I, I think it's in his best interest because, I mean, I think he's learning from LeBron. This is when his, you know, everything he started is, um, you know, starting to, you know, come back to him. Uh, Kyrie's been around him and how LeBron is always positioning himself, you know, to contend for a championship. There's all these rumors out with LeBron leaving and, you know, they're coming from somewhere. And there's a good chance that LeBron is going to leave. So Kyrie's probably sitting over here. Well, yeah, it's cool over here when he's championships, but I'm not just going to be someone sitting around uh, waiting, you know, for LeBron to do what he has to do to go. So, I mean, in that case, he's probably, he's putting himself in the best position for life after LeBron. They already got the championships. And, you know, I mean, I think at first I was kind of like, yeah, that's crazy. He's leaving the best player in the league. But this best player in the league is about to leave him. And he feels like he can go with championships somewhere else. And he doesn't need to be a sidekick to do it. Great perspective, it's Albert. You know, we had Clint Richardson on a couple weeks ago, and we're talking to Albert Young uh, and discussing the various issues in the sports world, of legal, contractual natures, um, on on Colton Court. And a couple weeks ago, our guest was Clint Richardson. Clint was a guard on the 1983 76ers championship team, and he talked about the mindset of his club then and, and the players he played with in the whole organization. It was really led by Billy Cunningham and they had some great veterans and Joyce Serving and then Moses Malone. But there would never have been the thought process of anybody sort of being maverick, anybody really worried about themselves. It was all, all about the team. Um, it's interesting how the NBA has now 30 some years later progressed to where these guys are really all individuals now. It, it seems to be more that way than in any other sport. What's your thoughts, Albert, having played in the football world compared to the NBA world. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of it you you know, just you envy the you know, the freedom they have and how such a player driven league and the money uh, they have. Where <laughs> you yeah, you would love to be to that level, but you know, when you have so many guys at the top, um, players tend to run the show. Football is more you know, there's players all over and you can turn over easily. Um, so uh, it's just a different environment, and that's what I also think that's the reason why people love football so much. Well, you had two real superstar Hall of Famers that you played with in Minnesota, in Brett Favre and, and Adrian Peterson. Yep. And and yep. but um, so so but they would never have done. I, I guess Favre a little bit somewhat orchestrated some moves in his career late in his career, but in general, a football player really can't dictate it the same way. Yeah, well, I mean, you got, I mean, yeah, and the guys that had that influence, they're being taken care of. And, you know, there's just such a difference between, you know, the top guy and the bottom guy. Everybody's interests can slip. Um, So that's why it, it is the way it is. All right, let's let's bounce to um, another. We're, we're we're hopping around the sports world a little bit, but there's hot topics in all of them. This past weekend, we had a really really good middleweight championship boxing fight of Canelo Alvarez versus GGG, the uh, Kyrgyzstanian champion, undefeated champion, and they they fought in Las Vegas and just on the heels a few weeks later after the Mayweather. McGregor extravaganza. We had a 
terrific fight um, that came down to a decision that was a draw. Having watched the fight, um, there was a scorecard that was really out of whack with what the fight was. And the fight was a, was really two terrific boxers, just great technicians, tough as can be, slugging it out for 12 really entertaining rounds. And one of the judges, um, she had it 118 to 110, meaning that Canelo won 10 rounds and GGG won two rounds. Uh, the other scorecards were just separating them by uh, GGG having won seven rounds and Canelo five, and then the other one was was a split six and six. The problem and the reason I bring it up is boxing's always had sort of this reputation as being a corrupt sport, and it has no governing body per se. There's all sorts of sanctioning bodies that give belts, um, the IBF, the WBA, and all sorts of things that do that. The it, You need to be sanctioned by the state and um, in Vegas, just the Nevada Boxing Commission, and they choose the judges. And there's really no, I don't know, answering or anything that makes anybody really accountable for making sure it's not corrupt. And at the end of the day, a draw, although leaves the fans a little bit unsatisfied, also has them calling for a rematch. And you can guarantee a bigger payday in Camelo GGG2, right? Where does the third G come in with Triple G? You know um, what? I, I, you know, and I don't even want to try to say his name because it's a Kyrgyzstanian name. But um, I don't know if oh, it's a middle uh, name or just became a nickname. But, but it's a lot easier to say. Yeah, boxing. I mean, overall, um, it, it kind of sucks because it's funny because it would be nice if they had some type of union because you know all those guys would be having. You know, what I mean, I guarantee you they all have CTE issues, but they have one to defend them. So the good thing about boxing is anyone can get into it, essentially, if you have a talented enough boxer. But at the same time, there's no structure. So you got a bunch of independent contractors. I mean, I'm one now, like 1099. I mean, everyone's an independent contractor in that environment. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to do what's best to make money. And until somebody demands that, that's why I think, um, the USC has so much, you know, why it's so authentic because you can't fake somebody because you, you know, bare knuckle, um, <laughs> really. Um, so, I mean, as long as that's going on, you know, if he decisions, it's always going to be an issue on boxing, I think. Uh, how do you feel? Yeah, no, there's no question. I, I agree. And it's the one thing that really taints it as you go along. You know, any other sport, you have a scorecard going along. In boxing, you just have an announcer giving you his opinion, but you don't have an actual scorecard. Yeah, yeah. So it's all, you know, at the end of the day, you don't really know how these judges have seen the fight until they announce their scores. And sometimes it's very different than everybody else has seen the fight. Um, and, and it's an unfortunate, it's a, it's, it's a part of the of the sport that's flawed. There has been calls at times, you know, you want to see the scorecards as you go along, but that would change the way the fight goes. And then it could make it, you know, if you're ahead, you just stay away. So it's probably best the way it is, but you'd also like to have some, um, I don't know, more responsibility in who becomes the judges. And apparently the credentials for, for the one person or that 118 to 110 scorecard that nobody could possibly have seen it that way. Yeah. Really, it would, that, that either knew boxing or was it was not corrupt. Um, you, you want some accountability that way. But the the public will continue to buy this stuff, Albert, right? Yeah, so they're going to, uh, yeah, I mean, as long as people are paying. Uh, I think people just want to be entertained you know, on a Saturday night at a bar. That's what it's coming to. Because, yeah. I mean, until you hit people where it hurts in the pockets, 
why change it? Well, and and but they do they do hit you somewhat. I mean, it costs you a hundred dollars for a pay per view, or the bars that's pay a lot. But but you're right, it is entertainment. Yeah, yeah. I, I was saying for you know, I was saying for them, they don't have any reason to change what they're doing. So. Oh, it it, it, it hits them in a very it, it hits them in a good way in their pocket, in a very very heavy way, yeah, and, and it's yeah, and it's yeah. and it's work and it's working. And uh, I, I don't I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. But it, it's sort of the common refrain when these fights are over. Let's let's turn back now to the football world for a second. And it's something that, that happened this weekend, and I, I, I want to touch on it because I also want to bring up some other past references. And I, Albert, I, as I get older, I've got way too much historical knowledge because my life is like the History Channel <laughs> rather than rather than uh, more, more current stuff. But Lawrence Timmons, uh, he was now a 11 or 12 year old veteran in the NFL. He is a linebacker who just signed with Miami after playing with Pittsburgh for the, his entire career out of Florida State. Tim, Timmons has been a Pro Bowl player, a terrific player, and a guy I know who I really, really like, a really down-to-earth good guy. He's from South Carolina, went to Florida State, spent his whole career in Pittsburgh, lives in Miami, um, and, and then signed with the Dolphins in the offseason. Yesterday, uh, he did not play because on Saturday with the Dolphins out in L.A. to play the Rams— was it the Chargers or Rams? Whoever they they played the Chargers actually. Um, they they were there for that game, and Simmons went AWOL and was found at the airport, like flying back to to Pennsylvania for some family issue that they have not disclosed. Um, it just you as a player it would take an awful lot to leave a club on the eve of a game, wouldn't it? Especially when you're starting. In. Yeah, I don't know. That. I mean, I, this is the first time I'm hearing that. That's. That's definitely, you know, out of the norm. And he didn't report back to anybody? No, you know, they, 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 they had to... They tracked him down through calling family and friends, found out he was at the airport, and then they sent some officials over and actually brought him back to the hotel, although he wound up not playing in the game. They really haven't come forward with exactly what's going on other than Timmons has said that he wants to rejoin the club and play. So it sounded more like potentially a personal uh-huh. issue or family issue, but they haven't really come forward with it. But it reminded me, I mean, Albert, and this is where I get into the historical perspective a little, there were three very notable issues that this reminded me of that happened all on the eve of a Super Bowl. And I, and I want to touch on them all because mm-hmm. for, for people listening, it might be it might be just interesting to hear these things. And and all three in all three of these occasions, the teams that had this happen to them lost the game. First one was um, in 1989, after the 88 season, uh, it was Super Bowl 16. No, make that Super Bowl 23, rather. It, uh, Touching my stale memory a little bit. It was Super Bowl 23, San Francisco 49ers, Cincinnati Bengals in Miami. And the Bengals had a starting running back named Stanley Wilson. And on the night before the game, Stanley Wilson had been suspended the previous season before that. So it was the 1987 season. This was in the 88 season and the 89 Super Bowl. He had been suspended for the 87 season for testing positive for cocaine. And that wasn't all that common back then. So he returned and had a really productive season as the Bengals went from going 4-11 and in the strike-shortened 87 season to going 12-4 and and going to the Super Bowl the next year. Um, and he was a, star, a big part of that. So on the eve of the Super Bowl, they're having a team meeting, and it's called for 6 o'clock. And I, I know this whole story in, inside out because uh, Boomer Esiason being my client and was a star quarterback and the MVP of the league that year. So they're all sitting around, and 
and Sam Weiss, their coach, always started meetings on time, and this meeting's late, and they're looking at their watches and wondering what's going on. And what happened was Stanley Wilson didn't show up for the meeting. They went to his room, knocked on the door. He didn't answer. They wound up having to break in with security, and he was found doing crack, crack cocaine in his bathtub on the eve of the Super Bowl. Um, so they then went yeah. and, and were, were deciding how to handle it. And in the time, for some reason, they chose to leave Stanley Wilson alone, and he took off from the hotel. And they never found him. They never. He was. He he wasn't seen again for weeks. Weeks and missed the Super Bowl. Really? And and their and and wound up. Apparently, he went to a crack house in Miami and had all his money on him from selling Super Bowl tickets and wasn't seen or heard of from again for a long time. Um, Stanley, I believe, is actually still in jail for armed robbery because he never he never played football again. Ran afoul of the law. Interestingly, had a, a son named Stanley Wilson who made it to the NFL, who was a great player himself. But um, unfortunately, drugs took the best of that guy. And the Bengals lost the game, and they lost a close game. And the guys who played in that game really felt that that incident had an awful lot to do with it. Um, and then there was Barrett Robbins, who was the center for the Oakland Raiders, and they were playing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in San Diego after the 2001 season. Now, make that the 2002 season. It was after, so the 2003 Super Bowl in San Diego. And he went AWOL the night before the game and disappeared to Tijuana. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's might might be fun to go to Tijuana, but you might want to wait till after the Super Bowl, and and yeah. so and, and he didn't play, and they lost, and, and and when they found him, he was whacked out, and thought they had won, and he never even played in the game. And the last one was that I wanted to touch on was Eugene Robinson, and I had a player named No More Brown. Eugene Robinson was a safety for the. Uh, if you remember the Dirty Birds, the Atlanta Falcons who went to the Super Bowl in 98. And they yeah, played. I remember that name. Yeah. Okay. And Eugene Robinson was their starting safety and uh, their captain and really well-respected guy. And on the day before the Super Bowl, Eugene Robinson was named NFL Man of the Year for his charitable work. And my, my client, Omar Brown, was Eugene Robinson's backup, and he idolized Eugene. He, he All year long, he would just tell me all the things that Eugene was teaching him as a person, as a football player, and all the week of the Super Bowl, so he was he was preaching to them do not go out in public the whole world's watching us we'll have time to celebrate and do partying later i know we're in miami but don't do a thing so he gets named nfl man of the year on this on saturday evening the night before the super bowl and then that night he disappears and gets arrested soliciting a prostitute on biscayne boulevard spends the night in jail and then comes and plays in the super bowl and plays mm -hmm. absolutely horribly in the game and on the first series terrell davis spun them all around and the what? denver went on to kill I the Falcons. and i was sitting behind because of the way they gave us the seats i was with omar at the time's fiance now his wife of uh she's going on 20 years almost but um we were sitting behind eugene's family and they all had their eugene robinson number 41 jerseys on and boy did they take abuse from people that day <laughs> you know just one of the crazier things yeah. that, so so when the spotlight's on it's amazing how some people break down isn't it yeah i mean i never heard of that stuff but who knows i mean you first got to find out why lawrence is you know why he went missing or why he didn't show and i'm not I, right i'm not tying i'm not tying to say that happened i mean you don't i mean you never know what happened or what's going on so no and i'm not tying him into but the, all three of those incidents were the night before the Super Bowl of all things. You don't even hear about this otherwise in any other regular game. And, yeah, and, I mean that's yeah, I mean that's a different. I mean that, I mean that's you know different era probably. I mean I'm sure that you know you probably hear more about that stuff going on now if there wasn't social media. You know back then those guys, you know, could be out there and do whatever they want.
Well, you played uh, you played in an NFC, you played in an NFC Championship game, Minnesota playing at New Orleans, and mm-hmm. um, it was a a great game. And you unfortunately lost for you unfortunately lost in overtime, and um, and the Saints went on to win the Super Bowl. Um, was playing at that level, that kind of spotlight? Did you feel the extra pressure? Was there extra tension amongst the team as you did that kind of stuff? Oh, what you mean, like when you're like headed into those games? Yeah, when you're you're traveling as a team, you're going to that site, you're you're, you're playing in a game that 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 is that big with the whole world watching you and knowing that you're playing for the Super Bowl. Did you feel it that much more than a normal game? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, because you you kind you know there's there just aren't as many games left. You know, you know everybody's watching you, and NFL is already, you know intense as it is but you know everything is just magnified but you actually feel like with a team you feel more sense of unity because you know you're really bonded right there as a group and it's like you know this is just us we're all prepared um you know guys aren't worrying about their job we're all good right now we just go play I was just talking today. It's funny you talk about the bond, Albert, and we had Clint Richardson on, as I said, a couple weeks ago. And Clint talked about the bond of the 1983 Philadelphia 76ers because you really stand together forever when you're part of a championship team. And I was just speaking with Mark Ross, who I know you know. Mark Ross is the uh, vice president, college scouting director for the New York Giants. And he was just telling me about how last night they had – a dinner for their 10th anniversary of their Super Bowl championship. Um, what was the third of four Super Bowls that the Giants have won? And uh, the Giants do things all all first rate. They actually rented out Ellis Island and celebrated their Super Bowl 10th anniversary. But uh-huh. you know, but but the special bond it will exist forever. And unfortunately, you came close but didn't quite get to get there. Uh, so anyway. Let's, let's go into some other issues, some of them NFL also. I, it's interesting to note as the NFL now <clears throat> is going to have a team in Vegas in a couple of years whenever they get this, that stadium ready for the Raiders, but they were not in Los Angeles for 20-some years. And um, you, you at one point, for a long time, you had the Rams. Um, you also had the Raiders for a short time. And, um, and down the road, you had the Chargers, which had started when they were an NFL team as the Los Angeles Chargers, moved to San Diego or an NFL team team after that merger um, and now they're back in LA so LA went for a long time without any teams now they have two and interestingly enough over the weekend the Rams drew 56,000 for their game against Washington in a, the 80 some thousand seat capacity Coliseum and in the StubHub Center where the Chargers are, have chosen to play this year uh, they left San Diego a real a, a normal major league stadium for this stub hub until the new stadium is ready in LA. And that has a 27,000 seat capacity. Hard to believe they're playing in a 27,000 seat capacity, but they've chosen to do that. They didn't even fill that up. They had 25,300 there yesterday. So between the two of them, the Raiders or the Rams and the Chargers had a total of 81,000 plus almost 82,000 people for their two games. USC had 84,000, slightly more for their game yeah. against Texas this weekend. I just point out because LA now has two teams and I don't know that they have the fan base really that has that yeah. much interest in it yeah no i mean i was looking at that the other day and i noticed that and i was like look, i was looking at the rams and i was like they can't get anyone to go watch one team in la you know let alone now you're going to make people choose between two so i mean it's like the nfl that's when you know just being stubborn like that's you know these owners are determined to make la work and for some reason it's not going to happen 
Well, well, here's <laughs> you know, a th- and I don't see it. I well, don't see it. Well, let's dive into the issue a little bit as we as we analyze it here on Colton Court, which is the economics of it, Albert, probably still work, and here's why. LA is the mm-hmm. second largest or third largest. I mean, you know, depending on how they measure things, but in general, it, it's been New York, LA, Chicago, L- Chicago, formerly the second city, Houston, now number four, maybe Philadelphia, the Bay Area, number five or number six, and and that's in terms of television markets. So by having the team in LA, they still now they've cornered the the second largest market, and hopefully for them it means ratings. And the, the thing about the NFL revenue is most of it is not derived from attendance. And what they will be able to get in LA though is they will make a ton of, but they will make a ton of money on their suites because there's enough businesses out there that they will want to have the suites entertained that way that whether or not they fill the building capacity won't be as significant as as much as as the premium seating. So at the end of the day, even Mm -hmm. though to me, when you see it on TV and you've got just scores of empty seats, I mean, really, 30,000 empty seats at the Coliseum for the Rams game, it still at the end of the day probably doesn't matter that much in hitting, in terms of costing them money because they'll have the television no, revenue no. and the suite revenue at the end when they finally get the stadium going. That's crazy. I mean, there you go. But it looks bad. Well, it's, it, and it's unfair. I mean, you know, the, the St. Louis fans were passionate, supported the Rams for for a couple of decades, and then they get the team swiped out from under them, which was the second time they've lost a club. And in, in, in my lifetime, they lost the St. Louis Cardinals to Arizona, and now they lost the Rams, and they're left without a team, and they're probably not getting anyone back anytime soon, um, if ever. So um, it's just interesting as we see L.A., and I have no doubt that Las Vegas will be a very profitable venture for the Rams and they'll make sure it is, but you, you don't necessarily, you won't necessarily see filled stadiums, but they'll still be able to produce their revenues. Um, I want to t- talk about Ezekiel Elliott because he's been a lingering subject on our show also over the weeks, Albert. Um, Ezekiel Elliott received a six-game suspension from the league. I talked about how I did not feel the evidence supported it when the, when the first suspension came down. Um, Ezekiel Elliott's legal team and the NFLPA uh, they appealed to the court of law, to the federal court, to get a stay of that six-game suspension and succeeded. The NFL then went to court to try to get that stay lifted so that they could impose the six-game suspension immediately. And the judge actually sided with the player and the player association and found the NFL to be somewhat hypocritical, saying because the NFL was claiming that there'd be no irreparable damage to Ezekiel Elliott if he didn't play because he'd be able to get the money back. And the, the judge almost laughed at that argument, saying that obviously a player missing six games, whether or not he gets his money, would have irreparable damage. He also felt that the NFL was making contradictory arguments Arguments in trying to get the stay to be uh, lifted, while also while also saying that the, they had not given enough uh, due credit to the due process and the way that things work through the collective bargaining agreement. Anyway, in trying to simplify the whole thing, does the commissioner in the league go too far, Albert, in the way they try to discipline their own players? And it, you know, th- th- here's a star player. Um, it's certainly in the best interest of the league having this guy play, and yet they're going after him pretty hard. I mean, they just don't want to get it wrong that they did the Ray Rice uh, incident. And the simple as that. Because if something did happen to come out, you know, they definitely want to be on the wrong side. So I think that's more of it. And I don't see them. Are they still fighting it? I mean, I feel like it's just something the NFL is like, okay, we did it, we lost. 
get over it. And that's a lab I'm getting fucked No, because they, they just recently wanted to have that stay of the suspension lifted to give him make him start serving suspension now the judge refused to do so but now they're going to have an appeal of this whole thing and they're not letting go as they did not let go with adrian peterson and you know and and all the stuff that they fought with him on his suspension for for his so-called child abuse incident and at the end of the day um they often lose the nfl but they they don't ever concede or try to work things out because there's probably a result there that makes this go away which brings me to Roger Goodell, um, and, and for the listeners, and we've talked about Goodell's contract in the past, the commissioner is employed by the owners. So the 32 NFL owners are really Roger Goodell's bosses, although um, this employee makes a lot of money. And, and he makes somewhere in the range of about $46 million, and there was talk of him having a five-year $200 million deal, which would be $40 million a year over the next five years, um, in place to, to be executed and continue on as commissioner for at least another five years. There's been um, some media reports that Jerry Jones has blocked that, the Dallas owner, has blocked them executing that contract. And there's certainly, over the last couple of years, been incidences where Goodell has upset and gone against some of his lead owners. Robert Kraft of the New England Patriots was very upset with commissioner over the, the whole uh, deflate gate incident. And now I know Jones is extremely upset with the commissioner for this whole Ezekiel Elliott. Um, it'll just be interesting to see, Albert, what happens, whether or not they do endorse this contract and let the commissioner go on and make, to me, excessive amounts of money when you have a league that has a salary cap of, in essence, $160 million for an entire roster of players, and the commissioner himself makes $46 million a year. Um, to me, there's something real disparate. And then that commissioner is always reaching in players' pockets, such as, you know, suspending Ezekiel Elliott for six out of 16 games, which in essence is, I don't know, uh, a pretty big portion, like 40% of the season. Um, And I'm going to talk about uh, some fine money that comes down. So I think there's a real, real awful way that this league treats its own versus the way they treat the players. Yeah, well, I mean, you understand there are two different groups. I mean, once you once people accept that, then there wouldn't be no difference. He, he works. He works for the owners. Uh, there's going to be no block. As long as he's making money for them, they're going to be all right. Um, and they're it's just that they go head to head, and that's just the contrast you got from the NFL and the NBA. Um, they couldn't be further apart. Um, so until then, uh, that's just it's, it's a shame. Um, that's just the way it's going to work. Um, and uh, that's just something players, I think players come to accept that. They yeah, don't expect to build on their side or anything like that. And it's funny how you say that because um, there certainly has been a perception amongst players that the commissioner is not very player friendly and and a a perception that I absolutely agree with. And yet, you know, when they get drafted, they come up and hug the commissioner and there was a real movement by by people. Yeah, I hate that. I hate that. And all players do hate that. (laughs) You know, the players that are in the league. He's got so much, like, I don't know, like, I don't know. He ain't your daddy. You know? And... Stop hugging that man because he's about to, you know, you're going to be going to battle with that guy. And you would think the agents and everybody would have told these guys that before they go on stage. I'm sure they do, but everyone's caught up in the moment. They have to do the right thing. So they go ahead with it. 
Yep, and and, and that, that is exactly right. You've just been drafted. Your name's announced. You've run on stage, and there he is. And it's you know you've only seen this guy probably on TV, and it's probably an initial reaction and excitement mm-hmm. of a young man. But as you get to know the business, uh, you, you might feel differently. And and there are a lot of players who speak out and, and ask the players not to hug the commissioner because they really don't want to see that go on, go on. But um, no, I mean it's a shame somebody even got to tell tell them. You know, I mean maybe. Uh, you know, you just got to communicate with guys coming in so they just have an understanding of what they're walking into. It shouldn't, I mean, they should understand, you know. And, and if they don't, I'm sure they found out after, like, their first week in the league. Well, well, as you know, Albert, there's a great education that goes on. You've spent your whole life playing football, um, growing up with the sport, playing in college, um, but you don't really understand the business of football when you first come to the NFL, do you? Oh, no, not at all. And it makes you look at the game that you love. So, because, I mean, it's like a business. You know, it's the ultimate, you know, just cut those business there is out there. I, I find um, it, you know, listen, I'm involved in it. I'm involved in it as a player agent. I, I love the game. I uh, love the people I know in it. But it's the coldest business I know, Albert. Oh, uh, by far. In, in so many in so many <laughs> yeah. ways and let's talk let's let's talk about a couple of those issues um one of my players uh is is a or one of my clients is a cornerback on the pittsburgh steelers who was a guest previously on colton court with us and we continue to discuss uh these legal and business issues with albert young today on colton court and wildfire radio and his name's william gay and william is now in year 11 as a cornerback for the pittsburgh steelers and he's a tough hard-hitting player and the bottom line is um every once in a while when you're playing the game as hard and as in the way that william gay plays you're going to get penalties and with some of those penalties you going to get fines because as a cornerback as a defensive back plays happen and without intent to cause injury without intent to break rules sometimes collisions just happen in, in ways that they're going to break the rules um, and I tell you that because uh, when a player gets a fine we get a letter we get a letter generally on Wednesday the week after the game telling us that he has a fine what the amount is and he has a right to appeal these fines escalate in amounts as the more and more you get and um we just got one the other week and what happens is we have we have the right to have a hearing the hearing is done on the phone with one of the hearing officers and just we are based in philadelphia and a lot of our listeners from are from around here john runyon is now the vice president in the nfl who actually doles out the fines and then Give, sets you up with the hearing, um, the former Eagle, and a lot of the hearing officers are former players, one of which is James Thrash, a former Eagle, former Redskin, who we've had in the past. I don't know who's going to be assigned William Gaze, but he got one for the opening week for a hit on a Cleveland Brown. They found the player to be defenseless. We What we do is we go over the tape, we go over what William's mindset is in these hearings, and it's really interesting. And for the most part, the hearing officers will give um, a lot of due deference to what the player tells them, and a lot of times the fines are mitigated, reduced to some extent, but they're large, they're large. And um, and William Gay's fine for this week, for, for the hit in week one, is $24,000. Um, that's an awful large yeah. penalty, isn't it, Halbert? That's crap. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was going to stop you there, and I mean, it's just, you know, when you set back and you're not playing anymore and, you know, everybody sees guys in the league getting that money. And I think even the CBA, they need to negotiate. It needs to stop somewhere with these fines because nobody's going out there. The game moves so fast. It's hard for guys to intensely try to, you know, take somebody out 
And right now, it's like, oh, cool, that's 24 grand, this and that. I tell you this, when players get in the real world, that 24 grand is a lot different than it is when you play. Okay? So while the league is, you know, everybody's like, oh, nah, just fine on that, this and that. You know, it's like, nah, the CBA needs to come in and be like, this needs to stop. Like, there's a limit. Like, the owners aren't going to like it, but they need to start taking games away. <laughs> you know, sure. Well, I mean, but Albert, it's, it's not you know, it's not worth it. But Albert, as a as a player, you can't adjust your mindset to play the game differently. You know, it's one thing if you're a dirty player and you're trying to oh. hurt people, but most play, players don't play the game that way. There have been players in the past, but there aren't players that play the game that way. They're, I mean, they're, they're out there trying to make a living and playing hard. So you're not going to change your mindset. So there's not a deterrent in it. It's other, It's just very, very punitive, and, and to me, excessively. And I, I get more upset than anything when players get fines in exhibition games, which they get. And there's no, and there's also no, oh. pro, and there's also, so so there you're making 1000 a week and you're getting fines such as this. Man, and, I was scared. I was scared of that my second year we're playing Seattle and you know, I wasn't familiar. Like I knew what a chop block was, but you know, high, low. And I participated in uh, EB Eric BM was like, Albert, you might be working free for the rest of this off season. And right there in that moment, you know, as a rookie, it's like, first of all, you, you already worried about making the team, but it's like, damn, if I don't make the team, you guys are still going to take my money. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was like, uh, thank God Seattle didn't report it. I think it was one of those deals where they're like, Seattle, you know, they were surprised I didn't get fined, but I guess it's maybe Seattle even has sympathy on them. Like, okay, these are the young guys in the preseason game. You know, we don't need to be reporting fines for them. Who knows? But yep. either way, I dodged that bullet. Yeah, for that one. But, uh, you know, it's, it, it can be very costly sometimes and, and some of these things. And every mm-hmm. every game I'm watching, you know, and, and it's funny because William and I have had too many of these now. And he called me up after that game and goes, we're going to be getting a letter. I said, yeah, I, I, I know. <laughs> and, and and sure enough, That's we, crazy. sure enough, we did. So we'll be having that hearing next Wednesday. And I, I'll, I'll report back how it goes. Um, I want to give you one more guilty innocent, uh, guilty, not guilty, before we wrap up today on Colton Court with Albert Young. And that is is Marshawn Lynch has now returned to his home area of Oakland and playing for the Raiders. And the Raiders are really good um, and and kind of have returned to the Raiders that really were a significant part of the league in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s. And the Raiders haven't been good for a while, but this team's really good. And Marshawn Lynch has returned after a year off from football to play for them. And yesterday, playing the Jets and kicking their butts, as everybody seems to do to the Jets. He started really dancing wildly on the sideline. It was caught on the on scoreboard and things like that. What do you as a player think of that? Do you care about it? The Jets seem defended, but the Jets should really worry more about their own play, in my no, opinion. they don't care. They act like they care. They don't care. And you don't find it, and you don't find it disrespectful? No. 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 First of all, he's at home. So, who cares? And you're losing. And they all, like, you know... Said that after the fact, they're like, "Yeah, it's all kind of, but you know what? He can do whatever he wants. You know, it's like you're already a loser for commenting on that. Like, who cares? Nah, guys don't care about that. I don't think they do. It wouldn't bother me if you're at home, you're whooping us, and you're getting hype with your crowd. It's like we well, all grown. Like, well, personally. Personally, I always like to see personality shown anyhow. The NFL through the years has almost tried to eliminate yeah, that kind I, I of stuff. Yeah, I thought that was great. Yep. I thought that was great. You know, I mean, you saw the fans in Oakland dancing. You can see that he's part of the community, and they all embrace him. And it's like, geez, you know, you almost think, like, man, they got a good team. 
you know, now they're moving to Vegas. They would be the team I would think would be the best in uh, L.A., but like you said, it don't matter. They're still getting money there. Well, but, uh, well, well, Albert, when, that when, Marshawn is probably going to be done once they leave, right? I mean, I, he's not going to go to Vegas with them. It so doesn't get to see that fun in his play for two more years. It doesn't look like Vegas is going to happen until 2020, at least. And you know, you mentioned oh. L.A. would have been or the Raiders would have been great for L.A. I mean, they were there previously. Al Davis moved them there in the 80s, won a Super Bowl there, and then went back to Oakland. But when they when the NFL allowed teams to move to L.A., the Raiders were trying to, and they blocked the Raiders. So the Raiders then you know called an audible and went to Vegas. So the Raiders did have interest in going to L.A. Um, for them, it didn't work out. Um, and I, I think L.A. the Raiders would have been the most popular team in L.A. So interesting the way um, the NFL does things in the end they make so much money and are so successful even things that maybe make you scratch your head don't seem to cost them too much but Albert um, in wrapping up you know the, the last thing I want to touch on is, is we're in the college season and you see a lot of these games Albert and you were involved playing Big Ten football for Iowa at the top level you coached you you worked at Colorado you've been around um, the college game in a lot of in, from a lot of different capacities and in these early season games Teams will, from the higher divisions, pay a lot of money to a lower division team to come play them. Um, teams have to get 12 games in. They want to get an easy, soft game and a, a victory under their belts before they go into like the conference play and things like that. And these teams, the, the smaller school teams, can pocket a lot of money. There was a game this weekend, Louisiana Lafayette made $1.25 million to play at Texas A&M and had to lead at halftime. There was a game earlier this season, I think, where Baylor played a lot of money to Liberty, and I think Liberty upset them. Um, but do you think that that kind of stuff makes any sense? Is good for football, for for teams to sort of be paying teams to be patsies? I know it's not good when you when you lose that game. No. But. No, it's not good for football, but this is – I mean, I, I you know, I look at this stuff a little deeper than most. It's like – Kyle's coaches got have incentives also, you know, on wins. So if you're a Kyle's coach and you know it's like you get six wins, seven wins, you get hey, if, if they're gonna allow you to schedule, you know, just passes, you know, to get there, they're gonna do it. So that's something the college fans, you know, you gotta hit them where they gotta make demands to see better play. Because I think that's just better for the game. You know, I'm with the Iowa, you know, I'm always thinking I'm like I think there's not that much to do in Iowa anyway, so there's a lot of people that, you know, it's like a pro team. But imagine you had a non-conference game of, like, a big SEC school coming into town rather than North Texas that they played the other day. You know, I think the fans would enjoy that more, too, and the players as well. Well, as a Rutgers alum, Rutgers played Morgan State in one of those games this past weekend, and after going 0-2, they won 61 to nothing. So I guess probably the Rutgers fans were happier after that game, even though it was a joke, than, than the two prior weeks. Uh-huh. Anyway, we'll get into the conference play soon enough, and that's when the teams really cut their teeth. Um, but these wins do help them get the ball games, and so and help the coaches hit the incentives, as you mm-hmm. said, and probably make the alum happy and pad the the pockets of the lesser schools. Anyway, Albert, thank you so much, Albert Young, for co-hosting with me today All on right. Colton thank Court. You. We've spent the last hour talking about a number of things with Albert Young, and we will be here next week and every week talking about the legal issues and business issues in the world of sports. For Wildfire Radio, I'm Gerald Colton. Thanks for listening to Colton Court. Court adjourned. <laughs>